Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's change direction a touch. Rana Hussain is a sports broadcaster who's held senior roles at Cricket Australia, Richmond Football Club, and also Collingwood as a leadership and culture consultant. She also sits on the AFLPA Human Rights Committee. This evening, she's been very generous. She's been good enough to give us some of her time to discuss well, some of the biggest issues in sport. Rana, welcome. Oh, hello, Tom. Thanks for having me. Should I ask you the question I've been asking everyone? <laughs> if you could change anything in footy, what would you change and why? Uh, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and say full women's competition. Yeah. <laughs> so how do, we get, how do we get there? There's a lot of work to do yeah. by the numbers for sure. I mean, we, we need a lot more sponsors. We need a lot more investment into that space. Yeah. We also need a head of AFLW that sits on the executive. Yes. That's yeah. what we need. We asked Nicole Livingston on Crunch Time about three months ago, should the AFLW um, CEO or general manager sit on the executive? And she balked at the question and it surprised me. Surely you want such an important person in a significant role at AFL House. Why did she balk? She didn't. She didn't believe it was necessary. She thinks she. Yeah, right. She thought she. I mean, I guess she sort of has to say that because she wasn't on the executive yeah, at the time. Yeah, what else is she gonna say? But I wonder if you if you asked her now whether she'd say she should be on the executive or not. Well, it just makes business sense, right? Like yep. it's a business arm of what they do. It's a league that really needs a lot of interest and time. It needs to sit at the decision-making table. Yeah. So when you say a full AFLW competition, and we've spoken a lot on this station about AFLW the last couple of weeks, and we've had some great guests on. Sophie Conway was a breath of fresh air. Ash Riddell came on. Um, Scotty Gowans, we spoke to him for about 20 minutes. He's been amazing. What a story mm -hmm. he's been. So getting a full competition, does that look like 23 games per team? And does it look like a winter competition to you? I think so. Yeah. I can't, I, I can't bear them playing in summer and in warm weather. It's yeah. just not right. Uh, don't get me wrong though. Like I understand why it is the way it is at the moment and yeah. you can't just press a button and make it happen. All of that does take time, but we have had quite a bit of time actually. And you'd think it would be further along than it mm. is. I just want to get to that point where we do have the talent pipeline. We do have the sponsorship dollars funneling into it so that we actually get a full competition. And so the players are clearly full time in that situation as well. Exactly. They shouldn't have to be you know, doing it part-time. And, and I was at the um, AFL MVP the other day um, for the women and, and some of these women, the stuff that they're doing, like there was a um, marine biologist and they're yeah. getting PhDs and I think no elite athlete <laughs> should be getting a PhD before the peak yeah. of their talent. <laughs> they should be all into their sport. Ellie Blackburn was telling us that she works at the Pancake Parlour, <laughs> which, we, yeah. which we loved the other night. I think we had her on on Monday night, which is two nights ago. The, the, the women's football discussion fascinates me because um, the game is growing and the support at Icon Park was there, mm. but yet the 
Uh, crowd numbers generally haven't necessarily grown since COVID, not significantly enough to at least grow the season. And the TV audience numbers aren't as big as what we'd like. So I wonder where the disconnect is because everyone who seems to like it loves it. So mm. where are the passive fans? Where are, the, where are those supporters, men and women? I mean, if you take the Matildas as an example, you kind of have to build it. It's the build it and they will come scenario, really. And I think that's what fans of the game are saying. I just think we haven't seen the AFL flex fully when it comes to AFLW. So we can't know what it can bring in. We just haven't seen them do it yet. So So what is a full flex? (laughs) And how long does it take? Like, when can we expect, let's say, eight, 17 rounds? But let's go aggressive. Let's be 23 rounds with a couple of buys. Look, I I think we have to double what's coming in financially. And that takes time and effort to pitch to sponsors to bring them in to actually say we're serious about this. Uh, I love love the idea of a Tassie team, but I think fans of AFLW are scratching their heads thinking, are now all the eggs in that basket? I I don't know. I think we need to see more effort than we have so far. We will get back to some women's sport in a little bit. I want to talk to you about the Matildas as well as the netball, but let's stick with footy for a moment. Mm. Can I say that you're a Melbourne supporter on air? (laughs) No. (laughs) You just just doxed me. (laughs) (laughs) Our panel guy, Robbo, is also a Melbourne supporter. I don't know what he's cheering about because straight stats two Mm. years in a row is not not much good. (laughs) Um, We had Simon Goodwin and Gary Pert on SEN Breakfast with Sam Edmund and Gary Lyon a while ago. And they'll pose the question, does Melbourne have a culture problem? And this was their mm. response. Um, right to the extent where we won a premiership in 21, we've been able to continue to do that and finish in the top four the last couple of years. Um, currently, right now, we've got some isolated incidents. And when I present culture to our footy team, it sits above everything we do in our footy club, ahead of X's and O's, ahead of the strategy of what we do. Without a good, strong culture, a high-performing culture, you can't have success. Alignment in behaviour is critical. It doesn't mean it won't be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's always ongoing. And currently we sit here, we've got some isolated incidents that on the back of each other would look like we've got some trouble at our footy club. But we haven't got the trouble that people think we've got. We've got an amazing high-performing culture in terms of the people and the leadership that have driven this footy club for 10 years now. And we're going to use the opportunity of these isolated incidents that we're dealing with to continue to grow and enhance that. We need it to be at the very highest level for the highest success. And that's what we're going to go about doing. An incredible high performing culture. Do you agree, Rana? Well, what trouble do they have then? If they, like, I would love to know what he actually thinks yeah. is going wrong. Then they have the talent. They've had the opportunity to, you know, raise that flag, you know, a few years in a row now. Mm. But they haven't been able to. So I'd love to know what he actually thinks is the problem. But if you actually drill down into culture, and you do this for a career, is a poor culture not a series of isolated incidents as Melbourne has had? Like what else can it be unless the whole team goes out on a night out and gets and gets drunk? You know, like it has to be a series of isolated incidents in order to diagnose it as such, doesn't it? Yeah, look, I'm wary of that. I mean, poor culture can look like a million different things and it, it is all sort of the stuff that you, you, know, you have to look under the hood. It's in the unspoken rules of a place. That's what we look at when we look at culture. And I know play, like I've spoken to players from the Melbourne Footy Club and they will say similar things, but I don't really know if they understand how good it could be and what a good culture would look like. And yeah. I think we've seen when footy clubs have taken it really seriously and named culture and, you know, all the stuff that's above the shoulders, when they've put that front and centre and worked on it really authentically, they've come up with the goods. Yeah. And so I just don't know why 
they're sort of balking at it. Like if people are saying, you know what, do you want to take a look at your culture? I think good leaders would go, yeah, sure, let's take a look. And do you think they could be doing that behind the scenes? And this is just the public front? Is that possible? I mean, but if they are doing that behind the scenes, I think the best thing to do is be transparent about that. That's what good culture is, is to kind of be up front and say, this is what's not going well for us and so we're going to work on it. Mm, It's such an interesting prospect. You've been around sport for quite some time now. What culture to you sticks out above the rest? What's the best one? (laughs) I'm super biased, Tom, because I used to work at Richmond Footy Club, so yeah. <laughs> I can't But you really... only go by what you see. Uh, no, I haven't been in, you know, every single club, so I can't no. speak for every single club, but the cultures that I've seen up close are places like Richmond and Collingwood of late, which is a strange thing to say given how, <laughs> you know, how much um, Collingwood has been put through the ringer and put themselves yeah. through the ringer. But I think, again, what I've seen at both of those clubs is – that willingness to lean into where they think things are going wrong. And yeah. and it takes vulnerability to do that. And I know that's kind of a zeitgeisty word, but it takes courage to say, we're actually not good at this and we need to get better or I'm getting it wrong. It takes a head coach to be able to say, like Damien Hardwick did, that I need to fix myself. Yeah. And I don't really hear that in Simon Goodwin at no, the moment. No, not, and we heard that in Nathan Buckley and they went on and played in a grand final, just lost to West Coast. I think it was 2018. So... Um, they did it and Buckley admitted, but I don't know whether Nathan Buckley conceded that he had to change because he wanted to keep his job or whether he genuinely felt he had to change, but regardless, he did change. So sort yeah. of the proof is in the pudding in the end, isn't it? And I think this is the thing that with authenticity and with really good culture and transparency, you can't fake that. Mm. So you've really got to be the goods or not. And and you see that with Craig McRae. He talks about love and connection and, it, and yeah, people kind of roll their eyes a little bit and think it's a little bit weird, but it's working and yeah. his players love him. They play for him. Text message machine is lighting up here. The temper text machine, uh, Rana, they love you. First visual step would be put the AFLW sign next to the AFL sign at HQ, not underneath it. What are your thoughts on that from Glenn? I love a bit of symbolism. I'm yep. happy with that. Yep. I mean, I think all of that is important. You know, there's so many debates about the kind of language of it all. Is it AFLM and AFLW? What do you call it? I call it AFLM. Yeah. I know a lot of people won't love that. But to me, it's more just um, for my brain to kind of process it. I like <laughs> I like symmetry. Yeah. And I think there's something in the symmetry, um, the symbolism of symmetry. What are your thoughts on an AFLW All-Stars or State of Origin game mid-AFL season to showpiece the best players in the game? It does strike me that now there's such a long time until we get to see these AFLW players showcase their skills again. It's a long mm. off-season, isn't it? It's a really long off-season. And I do find that I find that just before, you know, the AFLW preseason, I'm kind of reminding myself about the players. I have to kind of switch back on a little bit. <laughs> it's not as seamless as I'd like it to be. And, and that's also because we don't get as much content around AFLW. We don't get the big lead up that we do with the men's game. So I wouldn't, I'd happily watch a state of origin. Absolutely. I'd love to. I mean, they used to, they did it. It was Melbourne versus the Western Bulldogs, wasn't it? It wasn't mm. state of origin, but it was the, the 20, the 40, uh, 44 best players in the game. And it'll be good to see that again. Um, I've got a question for you. Andrew Dillon and Gillian McLaughlin are completely different leaders from the outside. Looking, <laughs> are they? Well, looking at it. Okay. Andrew um, Gillian McLaughlin is a charismatic showman, um, externally uh, motivated. And, you know, he, his legacy really revolves around AFLW and getting through COVID, just pushing ahead mm. and, and dealing with the logistics later on. I think Andrew Dillon is far more operationally um, conscious 
and clearly not as charismatic. That's not a criticism. Gil McLaughlin is just about as charismatic as you can get for a leader in sport, in my view. So what's, what's better for the AFL and a, and a sporting league? I mean, leadership is about who's right at the right time for the job. So, I mean, very, very different people very doing very different things at different times. You're right, Gillen was very business-minded and, and the right person for COVID, I think. He really... Yeah brought everybody into the boat and kept it sailing in the right direction. What I like about Andrew Dillon is that he's very connected to the community and the community game. You know, he was on the board, of, I don't think he is anymore, but he was on the board of the Basher Hooley Foundation. Yep. You know, he understands the game on that level. And I think now that's what we need. I think we need more of that uh, recognisable leadership uh, that speaks to the rest of us who aren't, you know, behind the four yeah. walls or whatever at AFL House. There's so much business that happens behind there. We kind of want someone who's a, bit, a little bit more relatable. But I ask if they're different because for a lot of people, it's much of the same, really. You know, a lot of people call him <laughs> Gillen Light. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved to have seen them really change it up. What about the social causes that the AFL pushes? And there's so many. And it just, I remember there was a, um, there, there's been rounds that have come and gone and they're really big on Indigenous issues as well. But it's almost impossible to be across every single social cause that has a worthy, um, I guess, backing. So how does the AFL pick and choose in the right way? Yeah, this is a conversation that organisations across every industry are having because modern leadership asks you to be socially conscious and really tapped into the public and, and the values of the public. And the AFL represents so many people. How can they possibly as you say, be across every issue. So I think the advice is often that this is where your strategy comes into play. You really do have to sit down and consider what is important to us. And I think for the AFL, it's important to consider what who are the next few generations of footy lovers and what do they care about? Because I think we have a generational issue here yeah. with the AFL. You know, young people are watching it less and less and they're watching it in different ways. Uh, the demographics of our country are changing. You know, who are those people that want in with AFL but just don't seem to quite get in? So how's that changed from, say, 20 years ago? The kids, when I was young, compared to the administrators then or the players then, like, why is the generational gap bigger now than what it was in a previous generation? I think, I mean, we're <laughs> getting into history a little bit yeah. here, but I don't think we've seen uh, such swift social change like we have in the last 30 years. And so I think with that comes really different mindsets. You know, even if you think about big institutions like banks, marriage, social constructs mm. that we just... We have always been taken for granted are being renegotiated. And however you feel about that, that's what's happening. And so I think you get, you know, if you look at the AFL program in itself, you get these athletes who are being raised amongst that change with really different values. I've spoken to AFL men's players who say they feel really disconnected to the people who are running the game. Mm. They don't see themselves in the people that are running the game and they're Virtually the same, you yeah. know, in so many ways, except for the fact that they're just from a very different generation. And so they feel disconnected to the administration. Yeah. And I think, you know, values are becoming much more progressive. I'm not saying that things have to change, but it's worth considering what that divide looks like yeah. now. Was it Rana I met at Arden Street with Steve Hocking in 2020 at an AFLW game just before the pandemic? 
I think I told both of you that the protected area and the 50-metre penalties had destroyed the fabric of the great game. <laughs> that text message from Dom. I don't, you... I don't know that that was me. I've only just recently met Steve Hawking, so yeah. it probably wasn't me, but I would have been there for sure. <laughs> um, can we move to cricket? Please, let's okay, do it. Okay, so uh, before we talk about cricket, this was Mitchell Johnson on the Mitch Johnson podcast discussing why he wrote the article on David Warner. Well, from the message I got in, in April after the – I think it was around the time of, yeah, um, Candice had said a few – said her a bit about not um, – on the back page about not being open as good enough to take the position. So that was probably when I responded to that and then I got her a message from Dave which was quite um, personal um, and, and I tried to ring him to, to try and talk to him about it um, which I've always been open. I know I've been open to the guys. When I finished playing, I said, if I'm in the media and I'm writing things or saying things that you don't like, just come and speak to me. Like it's, it's never, it was never a personal thing then until probably this point. This is, this is probably what drove me to writing the article as well, part of it. It's definitely a factor for sure. So th some of the stuff that was said in that, I, w I won't say it because I think that's up to Dave to say if he wants to if he wants to talk about it there was some stuff in there that was was extremely um disappointing what he said and and pretty pretty bad to be honest um so um yeah so that's that sort of was a bit of a driver um and again a bit with with george as well um you know ed sent me a message after the lance morris uh article i wrote and it was just a little bit condescending and um you know, when you receive it at all hours of the morning, it was pretty disappointing. So Mitchell Johnson has written an article on David Warner that I think had some merit, but it was quite personal in some respects, which I thought went too far, especially when it brings up Cape Town in 2018. Given that he missed for 12 months and he was punished significantly for his obvious mistake, what have you made of the, uh, of the word, uh, what do you call it, I guess, words of, um, war of words over the past couple of, couple of days? Mm. I agree. I don't love the personal nature of it. Uh, I think that was a bit too far. But I do like the idea of, especially ex-players, taking that kind of scrutiny to the game, to things like selection, because I do think that's healthy. I think that's yep. important, particularly for a culture like cricket. I think we need that kind of examination. And, you know, there are people like me on the outside that can do it, but I think it lands well, or at least, you know, people are listening when it is ex-players who kind of are in the know, they have all the intel. I think that's really important. And some of what he raises um, in his article is around, you know, the culture, you know, how do, you know, George Bailey going from playing to selections. Do you like that? Do you think it's too soon? I'm in two minds because there's a part of me that thinks the Australian cricket landscape is so small, you know, there's such a small pool of people to choose from and they all know each other. Selection's never going to be totally unbiased. Uh, but at the same time, you know, from in terms of what I do and what's good practice, you do need a few more checks and balances in there. There's something quite not right to me about that. Mm. George Bailey's a new age selector though, isn't he? And does the do the ends justify the means? You know, retaining the Ashes, winning the World Cup, um, you know, winning the T20 World Cup a few years ago, winning the Ashes at home. Like, it just strikes me that you can have a poor culture and still win in cricket. Equally, you can have a really good culture, just not the talent. So how do those two intersect? Mm. Well, I think the change in leadership at the very top of that tree um, says everything. You know, bringing in Pat Cummins, Andrew McDonald, 
I think they really consciously shifted the way they want to do things. And that a lot of that I think was about performance. Happy people perform better. Yeah. And again, we come back to that kind of generational divide of the style of leadership that those athletes in particular clearly wanted to see. Yeah. So I think, I think sport in particular, uh, underestimates the effect of psychology and culture on performance. So why is it that the Australian public and collectively speaking, I know this is not everyone, but generally speaking, there seems to be a level of dissatisfaction towards Pat Cummins. Why is that? I don't know. In the circles I run in, everyone's quite pleased with it. Well, maybe my algorithm's a bit off. but so <laughs> my face. I, I, I love Pat Cummins as a, mm. as a captain. I was sceptical about him initially um, as a leader. I didn't think he was in Australia's best 11 at the start of the World Cup in those conditions, but he proved me wrong and he proved everyone wrong. I think his leadership was great. But even, I mean, you look at the text machine when we're talking about, mm. and the text machine doesn't always reflect public sentiment, but a lot of the time it's a good snapshot. Um, when we're talking about Pat Cummins last week, People were saying, oh, anyone could have captained that team. You know, we got lucky because Maxwell played an amazing innings and Travis Head came back in. So it's almost like we as Australians are incapable of giving proper credit to leaders when they do a good job sometimes if we have a preconceived um, dislike towards them, which I find disappointing. Yeah, and I think the way Cricket Australia handled um, Justin Langer's exit is a big part of that problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I do wonder how much of that is uh, blowing back onto Pat Cummins. But he's, I mean, that the recent win at the World Cup really sealed the deal to me. I, yeah. I Even I was sort of wondering, okay, if they don't win this, I think we're still going to be asking this question. So you're a sceptic as well. I'm just a tiny <laughs> bit. <laughs> there was a part of me that thought, yeah. mate, you're going to have to win a few <laughs> to yeah. win me over. And they have. And, and now I just think they all look pretty comfortable and happy. Yeah. And, and I think you're going to see some good cricket out of them. The deep cultural issues in netball have been laid bare the last week or so. Um, what have you made of the pay dispute there? Oh, look, I mean, it sounds like it's coming together now, but yeah. uh, it's just a case study in what a breakdown of trust looks like between players and the administration. And they're just going to have to do so much work to bring that back to a healthy place. Is it irretrievable? I don't think so, but I think things like mediation, which has been floated around, is going to be necessary. I don't know how you come forward after what's happened, you know, not being paid for eight weeks. That's yeah. kind of abysmal. I think there needs to be a third party, whether formally or informally, but they need to really work on this now. So the government takes the $18 million away from netball and says it's for all female sport. Is that good or bad? <laughs> There's a question for you. Oh, thanks. And you know, about two minutes to answer it. I, it's a tough one. And we saw this after the Matildas um, World Cup run as well, where the government threw, you know, 200K at women's sport. And we find ourselves in a position now where women's sport are fighting over funding. Mm. And while we want increased funding, we don't want that. <laughs> we <laughs> don't want to cannibalise each other's sport. So I, I don't I don't know what the answer is outside of, you know, if you've got deep pockets, invest. Yeah, go and invest. What about the um, Amazon deal with the ICC World Cup? That's a shame, isn't it? I mean, it's a fragmented market. Totally. I, it breaks my heart every time sport gets more, further and further removed from free-to-air and to not be able to watch, you know, the test championship on free-to-air is um, heartbreaking to me. I am a cricket fan, uh, but I just think more and more we're seeing this. I know it's necessary to for the sports. I know why they need to do it. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. Outspoken people on political and social issues always receive plenty of hate from at times loud minorities. Heavy wears the crown. That's from Nick on the text machine. Nick, we'll just have to have a chat. You and I. <laughs>
Uh, I'm generally not a fan of David Warner, but thought his fielding was incredible. That's true. Hi, Rana. Mark from Essendon. You're the bloody best. There's a oh, message. Thank hi, you. Mark. Thank you, Mark. 800. So what is your, we got about a minute. What does your life look like now? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing for business? And, and you've got your own company. Yeah, I've just started my own consulting. I've worked in sport for about 10 years now doing this work, and so I thought it was probably time to go out on my own. <laughs> um, but I work with leaders, particularly in sport, because that's where I've come from, you know, to work on culture and, and high-performance cultures, whatever it is that you're doing. So where can we find that? Good human. Good human. Yeah. Love it. On, in, on Instagram? On, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on all the places. Love it. Do you enjoy that? I do love it. Yeah. yeah, I love working with leaders and I love getting the best out of people. Yeah. So what, what are the best sort of leaders to work with, do you think? The ones that are proactive and bring you into the room? Yeah, I'd much rather be brought in when there's no <laughs> crisis, that's for sure. Hey, Rana, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. This is Sports Day for Kia. Epic has arrived. The all-electric uh, Kia EV9 and Maccas. Get them a crib and a crib deluxe now. Maccas, back with Alistair Dobson next. <laughs>